How you guys doing this morning? Hey, time change weekend. I, I, I told our guest services team they should make the coffee like double strong this weekend, just knowing what we're walking into. And if you're like me, you've already noticed there's a rock under your seat and uh, you're getting distracted by it. Uh, that's just in case I say anything heretical up here, you know, just pull them out and unload. No, seriously, uh, just don't worry about those for a little bit and uh, we'll get to those in a little while. I, I want to pray to get us started and then we'll keep on going. So let's pray. God, I'm just so grateful for what you're doing in this place. I'm so grateful for what you're doing in my life and uh, our hearts. And God, as we look through the book of Hebrews, and God, we're, we're so grateful that, that you led us behind the curtain, God, where we find all these things that, that we didn't have access to, and now we do. God, you're such a good God. You're such a good Father, and we thank you for that. God, today I just pray that you teach us one good thing about your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So uh, if you've been here the last month or so, Jim and Scott, they've been walking us through the book of Hebrews based on Hebrews 6, 19 through 20. And it, it says this, and you're probably familiar with this. It says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We've been looking at these different things that we find behind the curtain, and if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, some of these might not make sense to you, but, but hold on, because this idea of a curtain, it comes from the Old Testament, and it comes from, from the temple. There's this, there's this curtain, and it separated uh, uh, the inner place where God's presence dwelt. It separated that from the normal people. Normal people, they couldn't go back there, but through Jesus, we can finally go behind the curtain, and we have these access to these things that we didn't have before Jesus. And so today, we're going to look at chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews, and find uh, one more thing in, 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 uh, that we find behind the curtain. And we start in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. And it says, uh, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, and like Jim said, that's what we're going to talk about today. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened through us, uh, through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And he's talking about baptism right there. That verse is kind of saying that because of Jesus' redeeming sacrifice, and that's what Jim talked about last week, we get to go behind the curtain and where we weren't allowed to go before, where we find a good father. We know that God has good intentions towards us now. Where we're made clean and we don't have to, to live in shame and be defined by our shame anymore. We find rest, and we don't have to work to be accepted by God. We're, we're accepted just as we are, and we find power. And Jim talked about how the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. And then we find redemption. We've been paid for. Our chains are gone, and, and we're free. We find all these different things, and today I want to look at another thing that we find when we go behind the curtain, and that's confidence. Read verse 19 again. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... And that word confidence in the Bible, it, it literally means this, the freedom to act or say all that one feels or pleases. Now go back to last week. Now we're free. Jim talked about it. Now we're free, but we're free to do what? We're free to do whatever we feel or, or please. But time out, that, that, that doesn't mean that it's a free-for-all. That doesn't mean that there are no rules. What that means is uh, now that I've been freed by Jesus, the things that I, I want to do, the things that I please, they're different now. What I want to do is I want to serve Jesus, the one who freed me, and I'm free to do what now needs to be done. And here's the thing that I've been thinking about this week. If we can go behind that curtain where only one man was allowed to go, and he could only go in one time a year before Jesus, if we're allowed to walk behind that same curtain with confidence, then what, area, what other areas of our life could that spill out onto? 
I mean, what if that same confidence could spill out into the job that makes you feel like you're in over your head? What if that confidence could spill over into that big decision that's keeping you up at night? What if it could spill over into raising your kids even though you feel like you have no idea what you're doing? And trust me, you're not alone on that one. Personally, I'll tell you, my confidence, it feels all over the place. One day I'm full of confidence and the next day I question everything. I I get in these places where I don't want to take a risk because I'm afraid that I'm going to fail. You know, and, and once I fail, I feel like a failure. Or it, it, also, I, I hesitate to acknowledge that I'm actually good at something because I'm afraid of what the person I'm telling that to is going to say. If they're going to look at me and be like, you're not that good at that. Like, that, Jesse, that sounds a little arrogant. I mean, if I get an opportunity to do something because somebody believes in me, that fills me with confidence. But at the same time, if, if somebody that I work with or, or a peer, if they get an opportunity and I don't, I, my, my world's rocked. If attendance is up... I've got confidence. And if it's down, I, I don't have confidence. I'm frantically trying to figure out, okay, what, what can I do to fix it? And I have no idea whether I'm going to be able to. And it plays into big things, but it also plays into really little things too. You see, my mom, she was in town a couple weeks ago. And, and when my mom comes into town, her and my wife, Kara, they, they watch a lot of HGTV together late at night. And they're really into this show called Fixer Upper. Has anybody seen the show? Like, and, and I, I, it happens every time, like clockwork. A couple, of days I'll, uh, a couple of days later, I come home from work, and they're walking around the house pointing at things like this. <laughs> they're, like, looking at them like this. And I know what's happening. They've got another DIY project in mind. And it, it, they're kind of more like DIJ projects, though. You know what I'm saying? Do it, Jesse. All right? That's the way that it, it kind of ends up. Because that, that show fixer upper, it makes it seem so easy. But my, my wife and my mom were having this conversation. I'm like... You guys, the reason it's easy for them is the the wife on that show, she's an interior designer, and the husband is a contractor. Of course it's easy to fix up a house that way. But I'm a pastor, okay? (laughs) Like, I'm a pastor. You stay at home, I mean, it's just different. It can't be that simple. And truth be told, normally these projects, okay, they're a really good thing. They're, they're cheap. They don't take a lot of time. Kara and my mom do a a bulk of the work. They're huge improvements to our house. But this time it involved plumbing. <laughs> and immediately I called, I, I tried to, to find a plumber to come over, but they couldn't get there for a week. And, and so that was it. I've got to figure out how to replace a sink in our house. And I'm not sure if you've ever tried to do this, but like I, with every hose that I unhooked and every handle that I unscrewed, I was more and more unconfident and sure that I was going to have to call a plumber anyways. I was going to waste 20 hours and still have to, to hire a plumber. And at one point, I was stuck. I had no idea what to do next. And so I went to the hardware store to kind of uh, just find a piece that would work with it. And so I go to the hardware store, and I'm looking around, and I realize I have no idea. Like, I'm not going to be able to find this piece on my own. And so I'm like, okay, Jess, just humble yourself. Find somebody to talk to who can guide you to the right thing. And I'm looking for somebody my dad's age, okay? Like, somebody my dad's age, been around the block, and he, he can give me some advice. And I'm looking around the corner, and immediately this 12-year-old girl that works there spots me, okay? I mean, she could be 16 tops, all right? She's like, sir, can I help you? And I was like... Uh, yeah, I'm looking for this, and I show her pictures on my phone, and she's like, oh, sure, let me take you over there. I know exactly what you need, and she takes me over. She finds the piece that I need, and like that, I'm set. I can fix my sink. Now, here's what I should have been thinking. Jesse, you got what you needed to fix your sink. We're good, okay? This this is good. Here's what I I was thinking. Jesse, even a 16-year-old cheerleader knows how to fix the sink, okay? Like, 
I mean, but the thought that came after it was this. Was, if you're a real man, then you know how to fix a sink. Shame creeps in. And Scott talked about that a couple weeks ago. And it doesn't just make me unsure of myself. It makes me sure that I won't measure up the next time that that happens. It kind of confirms what I already thought. And compare that with my son, Gray. Gray is five years old, and Gray is one of the most confident people I know. Okay, I, I, I compliment Gray, and he doesn't deflect it. He, he accepts it, and he smiles. I say, Gray, you're so cool. He goes, yep. I mean, that's what he does. He starts climbing a tree, and it, he'll climb it as high as he can go. He's not thinking about an exit strategy. He's not thinking about how to get down. All he's thinking about, he just kind of goes for it. The other day we were at home and I, I saw him pop an unwashed blackberry into his mouth. And I was like, hey, buddy, did you rinse it? And he, he looks at me and he goes, yeah, Dad, I, I rinsed it with my mouth. <laughs> and I was like, I, I, I don't know where he gets that from. That last part probably for me. I'm a bad example. But, but where does he get that confidence? He's accepting praise, this fearless adventure. He's willing to take risks. And it's not just him, okay? It seems almost like all kids are that way. And I think that that's very different from us. Sometimes what we do is we write it off as naive, but I think for us, that's just an excuse. Brene Brown, she talks about this in her book, Daring Greatly. You've heard Scott reference it before. And she talks about how adults, our lives, they've been defined by this idea of scarcity, that there's never enough. We wake up and we think, I didn't get enough sleep. The next thing we think about is there's just not enough time to get everything done today. And we spend the majority of our time from when we get up to when we go to sleep thinking about how there's just not enough. And she writes this. She says, everything from safety and love to money and resources feels restricted or lacking. We spend inordinate amounts of time calculating how much we have, want, and don't have and how much everyone else has, needs, and wants. And then she says... What makes this constant assessing and comparing so self-defeating is that we're often comparing our lives, our marriages, our families, and our communities to unattainable, media-driven visions of perfection. Or we're holding up our reality against our own fictional account of how great someone else has it. I look at a friend who gets to speak at a church I wasn't invited to and think, man, he's got it so good. If I was just a little bit better, then maybe I'd get that opportunity or you've done this, we get bored at home, and so we jump on Facebook, and we look at everybody else's highlights, and we assume that it's their real life, right? We, we bake cookies, and then we get online to see what everybody else baked. And the cookies were fine until we went on Pinterest, okay? Not that I've ever been on Pinterest, okay? I just want <laughs> to clear that up. Jim would not let me teach again. Uh, we get on Instagram, and we look at these photos, and they're, they're put through filters, and these filters are especially designed to make pictures look better than they actually are in real life. Because nobody posts, hey, here's a picture of the dinner that I burnt, okay? Nobody posts that. Nobody posts, here's me yelling a four-letter word at my toddler, okay? Nobody, nobody posts that. But we scroll through and we see one friend who's making a great home-cooked meal, another who's, got, who's traveling to some amazing place, another who's out training for a marathon, another who got a promotion at work, and another who's doing something creative and something fun with their kids. And after 30 seconds of scrolling, we think, I'm not as good of a cook, I'm not as adventurous, I'm not as athletic, I'm not as successful, I'm not as good of a parent, even though we're comparing ourselves to five other people. I mean, our culture is built up around this. I'm never going to have enough. I'm never going to be enough. Everyone else except for me is doing great, but I'm not measuring up. And if I bought that, if I had that, if I did that, then maybe it would be enough. That's just called marketing right there, right? 
and we wonder why we lack confidence. And here's the thing, it doesn't have to be that way. Because through Jesus, we have the opportunity, we have the invitation, we have the freedom to go where nobody was allowed to go before, directly into the presence of the God who created everything that we know. And that confidence can spill over into our decisions, our relationships, our work, our parenting, even our our plumbing. So where do we find that confidence? Because it's kind of like the band said, if I could, I would, okay, I'm trying. If I could be more confident, I would, but I can't do it on my own. And we use this phrase sometimes, we say, I need to find my confidence. What that presumes is that we we don't just grow it on our own. We have to look somewhere else to find it. And from reading the Bible, I just can't find any verses that talk about how we just need to look inside of ourselves in order to find our confidence or give our reflection in the mirror a pep talk every morning. You know, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. You know, that's not where we get our confidence. When confidence is mentioned in the Bible, it's always a reflection of our trust in God and what he's done for us, not what we've done for ourselves. And I don't think that we lose our confidence because we don't believe these truths about God. I think we lose our confidence because we forget these truths about God. So this morning, I want us to remember. I want to keep looking at Hebrews 10, and we're going to find three different words that give us confidence. I want to first look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. And it says, let us hold fast, that means hold tight, the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. Well, faithful means, faithful means that God will do the right thing, so keep his promises. He, he also has positive intentions towards us. He wants good for us. And that's what leads me to the first word, and that word's for. God is for you. Now, how does God being for us give us confidence? Let me give you a rough example. I've always hoped that one day I'd get to teach up here. Okay, I've always hoped that that would happen. I love you guys. I love this church. And I was hoping that one day I'd get the opportunity to share. But I had no idea how or if or when that would ever happen. And, and here's the thing. Jim and Scott are so good at what they do that I figured if I would get up here and teach at some point, you guys would be like, okay, Jesse, that's nice, but let's turn the video back on. Okay? Like, that's what I, that's, that's what I thought. And then the power went off. And we didn't have any other choice. Do you guys remember that? Like, which time, right? Exactly. All right. Um, I remember getting, walking on stage after just an hour's worth of prep, and I was so unsure of myself. I, I was not confident in what I was going to say. But when I got up on stage, I could sense something. Like, you guys were rooting for me. You were, you were behind me before I ever said a word. You, you were for me. And you being for me, it actually instilled confidence in me in that moment. And if you were there, think about how in that moment, how you were rooting for me. That same feeling that you had towards me is the same feeling that God has toward you. I mean, think about if God's for us, he's not against us, he's not indifferent towards us, he's for us. How does that change things? What if you knew if in the middle of every test and every hardship and every temptation that God is for you? What if when you have a really difficult decision to make, you're getting ready to quit, you're close to giving into a temptation, you realize that God isn't against you. He's not setting those things in your path so that you'll fail. What if God's for you? He sees the tests and he allows you to be tested because he knows that you have everything you need to pass the test. Because after all, he's the one that gave it to you. God's not the teacher handing out tests to all his students hoping that they'll fail or so that they'll fail. He's the coach who puts you in the game knowing that you can help the team win. That's what God is. 
See, there's this kingdom that you've been entrusted with, and we've been talking about that for the last year or so. God entrusted you with a portion of his kingdom for a reason. He knows what you're capable of, for good, for bad, and he still entrusted you with a portion of his kingdom. And it's like Romans 8, 31 through 32 says, it says, what then shall we say to these things? These things, these things that shake our confidence, that make us want to give up, the, the kids are out of control, the, the job cuts, the wife's affair, the tax bill you weren't expecting. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God being for us means he's faithful. He keeps his promises. He's a good father. Simply put, when God is for you, he provides for you. And this could be the single mom who's maxed out all of her credit and she's looking at her kids and she's wondering, literally wondering where the next meal is going to come from. And then suddenly the, uh, a check pops up that she wasn't expecting. It could be how God provided you with a perfect job that just perfectly fits your skill and your, your passion. It could be God providing a way out of temptation. You were about to do something that you were going to regret for the rest of your life. And for somehow God woke you up in that moment and stopped you. I'd assume that many of us in this room, we have a memory of uh, when we had this desperate need and God provided. But here's what, what's true of myself, and I wonder if it's true of you. These memories of when God provided, they stay in the back of my mind, okay? And then I, I, I forget about them. And what I start thinking about, I start thinking about my current circumstances, and I think about my current challenges, and then I start wondering if God's going to provide for me now, and pretty soon I make the conclusion that it's up to me to make sure I'm going to be provided for, because I'm not sure I can count on God this time. Anybody else? I mean, that's how it works with me. And so back in the Old Testament, God was constantly telling the people, remember, remember, remember. And the people of Israel, they had this custom where God would provide something. What they would do is they'd take a bunch of rocks and they'd pile them together. And they'd call it an altar. There was this one time with Abraham, and Jim talked about Abraham a couple weeks ago. But Abraham, out of respect to God, was getting ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, to God. And at the last minute, God provides a ram to take Isaac's place. So Abraham, he builds an altar. And look what Genesis twenty-two fourteen says. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. But I want you to look at that real quick because Abraham didn't name that place, the Lord did provide. He named it the Lord will provide because what God has done is just further proof of what he will do. You see, the reason we look to the past is to give us confidence for what he will do in the future. This is where we get one of the names of God in Hebrew, and that's Jehovah Jireh, means the Lord will provide. He will. And so all throughout the land of Israel, there'd be these altars built up for when God had provided for them in some significant way. You'd be walking around the country and you'd see these altars set up and you would remember. It reminded people how God provided. And if it was a really big deal, something like when God freed the people from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt with Passover, they would set up a festival, a feast with, with great food and great wine, okay? Don't tell the religious people, all right? A yearly reminder and a celebration of what God had done for them. They had these altars, these celebrations, these tangible symbols to help them remember that God was and is and will be for them. And so that's why you have these rocks under your seat. And you don't need to, to pick them up yet. Because I think that sometimes we forget. I think sometimes we forget how God provided for us in the past. How God proved that he was for us in the past. And we need reminders. 
We're not going to go around our neighborhood and build altars all around our neighborhood, okay? Like, that'd be a little awkward. And we're not going to throw parties to celebrate what God provided. Although on that one, maybe we should. But we need something to help us remember what God has done so that we can have confidence of what he will do in the future. So here's what I want you to do with that rock. You, you don't need to pick it up now, but I'm going to bring up some other words, these reasons that we can have confidence. And what I want you to do when I mention these words, these phrases, and when I start talking about them, when you get a memory of a vivid example where God did that for you, where he provided for you, he, he showed that God was for you, you pick up that rock and you hold on to it for the rest of the service. And maybe as I was talking, you've already identified a moment where you remember that, that God showed how he was for you and he provided for you. If you remember that, then reach down, pick up that rock, and hold on to it. Here's the next word that gives us confidence. It's the word with. God is with you. You see, all throughout the Bible, God reassures his people, don't be afraid, don't fear, I am with you. And I think this is one of the things that he knew we needed to know. In the middle of these circumstances that seem like God is nowhere to be found, or in the middle of my, my mistakes where any good God, if God really uh, was a good God, he would leave me in the middle of these, will he still be with me then? And so God reminds him in Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, it says, For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is, not was, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, God has said he'd never leave us or forsake us, and he promises that no matter what, he'll be with us, and we don't need to fear. So it's safe to say when God is with you, he protects you. That's why Hebrews says, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, when God's with me, there's no need to fear what people can do to me. And here's the truth that I think that verse speaks to that, that I think we could all agree on, whether we believe in God or not. When someone you trust is with you, there's less to fear. Later this week, I'm going to try to go climb a, a 14er. I, I try to do a couple 14ers every year. I really like being up in the mountains, but there's something about being up on top of a mountain in the, in the middle of winter when it's just silent. There's snow all around. But here's the thing. I, I don't have much confidence to be able to do that on my own. See, during winter, I, I don't know what I do if the weather changes. I don't know how to avoid avalanche danger. I don't know anything like that. And I'm grateful for a friend of mine named David. He's got so much experience climbing mountains. He's done all the 14ers in Colorado, a lot of them in the winter. He knows all about the weather danger. He knows all about avalanches. And I totally trust him when we're on the mountain. I totally trust him. If I was alone, chances are I probably wouldn't go. But with David, I know we'll be safe. You see, when someone you trust is with you, there's less to fear. And this works in our everyday relationships, too. Because the people we surround ourselves with can either fill us with confidence or tear it down. You see, when, when, you, when you know the people around you are, are safe, that they want good for you, that they're going to stand by you, there's a lot less to fear. When you feel like it, the people in your life, they're not going to be loyal to you. They're talking behind your back. They care more about their own good than yours. And what would your relationships be characterized by? By fear. And here's what happens with me, because at, at times I'm, I, I can be afraid of other people, either what they'll think or what they'll say or what they'll do, and I, I hold back. I don't open up. Don't open up to, to my friends, to my wife, to anybody. And when this happens, I have, I have nobody to talk to, so I start having conversations in my head. Not like a crazy person, okay? You know, or at least too much of a crazy person. Uh, but here's the thing about these conversations in my head. They rarely reflect reality. They seem more paranoid than anything. 
And the longer they say in my head, the worse that they get. And by the end of it, I've convinced myself that I can't trust people. I probably can't trust God and that God won't protect me from anything I'm facing. And if I'm going to make it through life safely, then I'll have to figure it out on my own. And I think that God knew that's what would happen when we isolated ourselves. And he wants to remind everyone how important it is to stay connected with other people. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, that's the day Jesus will return, drawing near. Now I want to drill down on this a little bit because it says we're supposed to stir one another up to love and good works. And that, uh, that word stir up could literally be translated provoke. It's the same, uh, the same word in that verse that says fathers shall not provoke their children to anger. So we've got to understand this is not a passive word. This is something that gets a reaction from the other person. It's even a, a little confrontational. And here's the thing. We all know people who are naturally confrontational, don't we? And the last thing that they need is a Bible verse giving them an excuse to be more conversational. Like they just need to chill out and get happy, right? Like that's what, that, that's what I feel like. But, but I think for the majority of us, especially in our culture, the goal in our relationships is to get along with everybody and not offend anybody. But Hebrews is telling us that if we actually want helpful relationships, then it'll involve confrontation on the things that matter most. And the goal is not throwing stones. The goal is not hurting other people. The goal is just to help. And here's the question I want you to ask yourself. In my friendships with other followers of Jesus, when someone does something I know doesn't align with what God says is best, how often do I speak up? Because I need people in my life to speak truth into my life, to stir me up to love and to good works, especially in the times where it's hard to hear and I don't want to listen. And then we look to verse 25. It says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. You see, when it comes to our faith, I think a lot of people think this is just between me and God. I, I don't need to talk about it with anybody else. I can be spiritual and not go to church. And while I think that there's some truth to that, I, I just can't see how that's the best and the wisest thing to do. I heard someone say one time, your relationship with Jesus was always meant to be personal, but it was never meant to be private. Following Jesus in isolation is almost impossible because we were created to need each other. And that's something I've been so pumped about recently at this campus. As we started getting into community, we had 475 people sign up for groups. It's been cool to watch these groups start hanging out outside of group time. They come to church and they sit together to watch community at this campus forming. And the reason that we meet together is so that we can encourage each other. That word encourage, it literally means to strengthen. And sometimes I think that we weaken that word. And to us, encouraging one another simply means, turns into doling out compliments. It's like, I like your shoes. I like your hair. It looks like you've lost, lost weight. And here's the thing. Compliments are nice. I mean, they make us feel better, but they don't strengthen us. And when, I, when you walk out of this room on Sundays, I don't necessarily want you to feel better. I want you to feel stronger. Because let's be honest, deep down, we don't need compliments we need encouragement because life is hard and there are moments where on my own I'm tired and I'm fearful and I want to give up. And in those moments, I don't need a compliment because honestly, I wouldn't even believe it if it was true. In these moments, I just need somebody to strengthen me. I need, I need people in my life to speak truth into my life that I just can't get my head around on my own. I need people to help me remember that God is with me. And Jesus tells us that's something that's most tangible when we're with other people. He says it this way. He says, for where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. 
So you get around other followers of Jesus, you stir one another up to love and good works, you encourage and strengthen one another, you help one another remember that God is with you, that's what church is supposed to be about. And when we come together, we remember that God is with us, that he protects us. And that's something we remember best when we're gathered together with other people who follow Jesus. So back to those rocks. If you've experienced God being with you, whether that was through his presence during a really difficult season or whether it was through another person who spoke that truth into your life, then you go ahead and reach down and pick up that rock right now. Now, before we get to that last word, I want to keep on reading, and we're going to skip down a few verses to Hebrews 10, uh, verses 32 and 34. It says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, and that's the aha moment that Jim was talking about last week where Jesus turned the lights on. He said, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach. That's like extreme disapproval and affliction, and that's pain and suffering, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, how do people do that? I mean, I have days when life is hard, right? But, but they were constantly suffering. Okay, they were constantly suffering. They were regularly shamed in front of their neighbors. They were put in prison. They were robbed simply because they followed Jesus. Next week, Jim is going to talk about just how bad it got for them. And it says that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. I mean, with that much going against you, how can you be joyful when people are stealing what little that you have left? And that brings me to the final word. That's in. Christ is in you. Now, I want you to hang with me for a little while because this is kind of hard to grasp and understand at first. But if we hang on, we'll see how this is key to our confidence. You see, Paul teaches us that what this means in Colossians chapter 1. He says in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Does that sound familiar with what we read a minute ago in Hebrews? And then verse 27, it said, To them, the church, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, non-Jews, are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That hope of ever living a life that reflects how big and great and powerful God is. Then he says in verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul right here, he's talking about something that's even better than God being for us, even better than God being with us. And he's talking about how it's been a mystery. And kind of what he means by that is that the best that people could have hoped for before this is that God would be for them and he'd provide what they needed for them and that God would be with them and he'd protect them from the things that they would face. But that's all that they could wrap their minds around. And what, what Paul's saying is, no, you don't understand. There's, there's another level. There's something you couldn't have imagined. That's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's your only hope. And he says that because Christ is in you, we can actually rejoice in our sufferings. I mean, we can, we can struggle and toil tirelessly because he's given us energy and working within us. That's what Jim was talking about the last two weeks. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, with Christ in me, I can make it through more than I thought I could. I can accomplish more than I thought I could because when Christ is in you, he empowers you. Because Christ is in you, you can make it through a crushing loss that would have left you on a heap on the floor before. Because Christ is in you, you can handle the huge disappointment. Because Christ is in you, you can persevere through horrible finances, a messy divorce, an uncertain future. You can make it through anything with Christ in you. 
All the things I think that I could never make it through, all the things I think that I could, I could never do, things much bigger than plumbing, all right? Things like relationships and career and family and friendship. Christ in me empowers me to do them because the same power that raised Christ from the grave lives in me. That's why Jesus said it was better than he goes than he stays with the disciples on earth. He says in John 16, 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage, that means for your good, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, and that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus tells his disciples right there that it is for their good that he leaves. Because if he doesn't go to the cross, if he doesn't free them from their sins, if he doesn't rise from the dead and and eventually return to the right hand of God, then the Holy Spirit won't come. And that's a whole other talk for a whole other time, okay? But the Holy Spirit is literally Christ in us, empowering us to do what we could never do on our own. Jesus says it himself, better than Jesus with me is Jesus in me. So right now, if you've experienced a time where you distinctly remember that Christ in you empowered you to do something or make it through something that you never thought you could make it through on your own, go ahead and pick up that rock. See, as followers of Jesus, we get our confidence from three words. God is for us, God is with us, and Christ is in us. And we lose our confidence, not necessarily because we don't believe those things. We lose our confidence because we forget those things. And that's why we have these rocks. Because they're not just rocks. They're they're symbols. They remind us of how God showed up in the past and how he'll show up again in the future. And I think they're just a start. I mean, if we want to live with the confidence that comes from knowing that God is is for us, with us, and in us, then we need to set regular, intentional reminders to help us remember what he's done for us. And I don't know what that could be. That could be a physical symbol that you put around your home that reminds you of a time that God provided for you. That could just be setting a reminder in your phone to remember a time that God protected you. It's definitely coming to church and gathering together with other people who follow Jesus. And maybe it's even throwing a, a party just to celebrate what God has done. I mean, in two weeks, we're about to celebrate the biggest event in our faith, An Easter brunch doesn't have to be boring, okay, with pastel polos and new dresses and and ham, okay? Easter doesn't have to be that way. It can be so much better than that. I don't know what it is for you. All I know is that we need these regular, these intentional reminders of what God's done. This morning, these are just a start. I want to close up by telling you what mine stands for. It's time that God showed me that he was for me. Back when I lived in Kentucky, my... uh, um, I was having a conversation with my dad, and my, we were talking about going to concerts, and my dad said, I don't want to go to, con- I don't like going to concerts, because he hold, held up a CD, and he goes, because this sounds better than a concert, and I remember just thinking, like, dad, that's ridiculous, that's, like, that doesn't make any, any sense, but we agreed to disagree, and then he paused, and he said, but you know, if you two ever came to town, I, I, I think I'd like to actually go see you too. And so I immediately went home and I went online and I found that they weren't coming in town, but they were coming to Chicago, which was a few hours away. And I bought tickets and uh, I gave them to my dad on Father's Day. And uh, so uh, my dad and I, and he was so excited. And so we're going to go to this show uh, in in Chicago with my two brothers-in-law and we're going to go see you too. And my dad was so excited. And in between Father's Day and when we're going to go see the show, my dad's cancer came back. And this time it came back and it it was different because uh, um, it affected his energy and he'd fall asleep at meals. He, he, he didn't have a lot of energy. It affected his strength and he couldn't really walk very far anymore. He couldn't, couldn't do a lot of the things he was used to. 
He was affecting his memory. He was having trouble remembering my, my kids' names. He was, he was having trouble remembering just what I had said the, um, the moment before. And so my dad would just ask the same question over and over and over again. And we didn't know how much he understood. And I asked my dad, uh, as we got closer to when we're going to go to the concert, Dad, will you... Do you still want to go to the concert? And he was like, yeah, I, w- I want to go. So we drove up to Chicago, and we're, we got there a little bit early so we could walk around and check out a couple of restaurants and everything. And as we were, as we were walking, uh, we walked about a half a mile, and my dad got too tired. He said, I, I don't think, uh, he, he was just like, I, I got to go back. And so I, I, I took him back, and we, we just went back to the hotel room. And we, we skipped kind of sightseeing for the rest of the day, and we just sat in the hotel room while he took a nap on the bed the whole day, and, and we, we just kind of sat there in the hotel room. And then we went to the concert, and my, my dad was so weak that he could barely make it up the, the steps, and, and me, uh, being cheap, I bought the cheapest tickets we could find, and so we were all the way at the top. And so as my dad's kind of walking up there, he was using both hands to brace himself as we walked to the, uh, to the top. And when we got up there, everybody's standing up for the opening act, and my dad just sat down. And I didn't know how much he was understanding, and I couldn't, really rem- I, I couldn't really see if he was enjoying it or not. And then you 2 came out, and everybody just starts going crazy. My dad didn't stand up, but I just looked at him, and he just nodded like this. And I, I, and I knew he appreciated it. And we went through the whole concert, and you 2 didn't play my favorite song, and I, I was like, okay, that's a bummer. But at the same time, they always come out for an encore, so we'll wait for the encore. Maybe they've saved, saved it for the end. And uh, um, as everyone's cheering, I, uh, my dad just kind of was sitting there and his head was nodding off and he was dozing off. And I realized that when everybody exits, exits when, with 50,000 other people who are exiting at the same time, there's no way dad makes it out of there uh, in the next two hours. I got to get him out of there now. And so we start walking out, and everybody's cheering for you two to come back out. My dad and I are walking down the steps, and we're walking outside. And as we get right outside the stadium, I hear everybody cheer because you two comes, uh, you two comes out, outside. And my dad and I just we went and we we, we sat on this uh, we sat on this bench, and I hear they started playing the notes to my favorite U2 song. It's the song that the band played. Bad. It's kind of nice when you teach up here, you get to choose a song. So, uh, but but they, they started playing that song. And I was so mad. I was mad at myself because I thought, Jesse, why, this was not a good idea bringing your dad here in this condition. I was mad at my dad, even though it wasn't his fault. But you know when, you, when you're afraid and you're sad, you don't know how to process it, so you just get angry? Like I, was, I, I was mad, and I was mad at God because in my mind it was his fault and he ruined my weekend. And we sat and we waited, and I could faintly hear it in the stadium. And then after the encore was done, my brothers-in-law, they came out, and uh, we went back to the car, because I, I was a youth pastor at the time. We had programmed that next Sunday morning, and I had, to, uh, I had to get back there and actually drive back through the night to get to youth group that Sunday morning. And my brother-in-law was saying, he was like, hey, Jess, uh, uh, I'll stay up with you. You should have somebody stay up with you as you're driving back. And my dad volunteered. He's like, hey, I, no, I'll, I'll stay up. And I was bummed. Because my dad's just going to ask me the same question over and over again. And in about 15 minutes, he's going to get too tired and he's going to fall asleep. And that's about how my weekend was going. And my dad, we, we were driving and my dad asked me a question. And I answered it. Then he asked me another question and it was different. And I answered it again and he asked me another question and it was different. And I realized my dad was lucid for the first time in six months. 
that we were having a, a conversation with each other. My dad was asking me about my family. He was remembering my kids' names. He was asking me about work and faith. We are talking about ministry and family and everything like this. And he was sharing about his childhood and he was sharing about everything. My dad and I had a three-hour conversation coming back from Chicago where he was lucid. And it's the conversation that I never thought I was going to be able to have with my dad. Never thought I'd be able to have it. That morning, I dropped my dad off at the house. And that next, that afternoon, I went back over to see if my dad was if my dad stayed that way. And my dad was kind of back to, to forgetting, back to being weak, back to everything. And a few years later, my dad died. But I look at that conversation and I look at it as, a, as God saying, Jesse, you're going to go through a really, really difficult couple years. I'm going to make sure you have something to hold on to, to know that I am for you in the middle of that. He showed me that he was for me. So every time I hear that song that the band played, I'm taken back to that memory where God showed me that he is for me. I remembered how even though my dad isn't here anymore, God still provided what I needed to make it through. So we're getting ready to close up. And some of us, we might not have picked up your rock yet. You might not have picked up your rock yet. And that's okay, okay? You're probably experiencing a lot of tension because you're going, I guess I don't have a lot of reason to have confidence in God. But here's what I want to tell you as I close up. Oh, the thing about us, our confidence and our faith, it is not built on our experience. It is not built on our feelings. It is built on a day in history where Jesus went to a cross and, and he proved once and for all that he was for us, that he was with us, and that he would be in us all at the same time. He provided for us what we couldn't have provided on our own. He protected us from what we had brought on ourselves and he empowered us to make it through things that we would never be able to make it through on our own. So if you believe that, go ahead and pick up your rock right now and hold on to it. Because these rocks, they're not just rocks. They're symbols. They're, they're moments. They're altars. They're reminders of what God has done. And we keep them in front of us so that we remember. We remember what he did and when we remember what he did, we have confidence knowing that he'll do it again. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 5 says this, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Let's pray. God, I just, God, I thank you. So many times, God, I, I, I just forget how good you've been to me, how good, how good you've been to us. God, I, f I forget how you provided for us when we needed it the most. You protected us from ourselves at times for other things. And God, the, through the spirit of you living inside of me, God, I know I can make it through anything. God, we have confidence that doesn't come from ourselves, but our confidence comes through you. God, we praise you and we worship you. We thank you for the strength that, that you give us. God, we believe that you are able to do anything. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.